Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and I have my mother and co-host, Caroline Kilborn, with us today. Hi, Mom. Good morning. Hi. <laughs> hey, you seen some robins? You seen robins? Well, if you're seeing robins, they're awfully darn cold. It was 11 freaking degrees out here this I know. morning. <laughs> I know. I know. I don't know how birds keep warm. I, I, it, it amazes me. It just amazes me. Yeah, this, anyway. this is the middle of March, and, you know, it seems like it should be a little bit warmer. But anyway, who do we have with us today? Today we have Harper Kincaid, who is the author of A Midsummer Night's Scheme. And um, the reason that title, because uh, before every chapter, there is a quote from one of Shakespeare's plays. And so it's, it all, it all fits together. <laughs> and, <laughs> And uh, Harper was born in California and raised in South Florida. She has moved around like a nomad with a bounty on her head ever since. Now, that was <laughs> here. I didn't make that up. <laughs> <laughs> After earning her master's degree in gen- gender history and another in clinical ma- macro social work, she decided not to use either one and become a writer <laughs> instead. But I'll bet she used some of that knowledge in writing this because this is amazing, amazing history. Okay. (laughs) Well, welcome to Writer's Voices, Harper. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) So this is um, not the first mystery that you've written. Right. right? This is the the sequel to the first in the series, which was To Kill a Mocking Girl. (laughs) Obviously, I'm I'm doing the puns. You're doing the puns, the literary puns, and there's another kind of overriding theme to these, which is bookbinding. That's right. So that's, you know, really fascinating. So I noticed the first one was called a bookbinder mystery and the second one is called a bookbinding mystery. <laughs> yeah, that, I don't know why they, I, you know what? You are the, oh, my goodness. You know what? You are the first to say that to me. And I'm realizing that they made a mistake. It was supposed to be a bookbinder for the whole, you know, it's all the same series. Okay. Oh, I'm going to let Crooked Lane know that. And, and you're the only one who caught that. So yeah. Well, I'm an accountant. So I. Ah, uh, I come from a long line of accountants, believe it or not. Like my father was a very big time CPA who also designed courses for grad schools. And I can't math at all. So <laughs> he would, like, look at me and be like, how are you, my child? You can't do this. And I'm like, oh. so, yeah. So, so details are like, you know, my thing. That's <laughs> I love it. I love detailed people. That's wonderful. Oh, good, good. So um, tell us, Harper, a little bit about why you decided to become a writer of cozy mysteries. Good question. Uh, So I actually started off in romance and not just romance, but like erotic romance. So like everything was on the page. Right. (laughs) And, you know, which I mean, everything. And, you know, while that was fun and I went through sort of my you know, that, that period of my life, as you grow as a writer, um, you want different challenges. And while I do have to admit, I do have a mouth like a sailor in my private life. I liked the idea. First of all, I turned to cozies uh, for my own sort of comfort food. And I really became entranced by, first of all, just as a writer, the idea of restraint 
and yet still being just as effective. Um, and then also I did actually end up going back. I need to change my bio. I did go back into uh, becoming a psychotherapist. So I do that during the day. Um, and uh, I will tell you that, you know, after a long day of, you know, holding people's pain and helping them through some of the worst, you know, service of their life, then uh, at the end of the day, I don't want to read something that's full of violence and angst. Um, low angst is okay. But like, yeah. I, you know, saying that, you know, like a book like The Lovely Bones, which everyone loved at the time when it came out, like I was not interested in reading about, you know, a, a, you know, young girls, you know, being murdered. You know, I just couldn't take it. So cozy mysteries were my comfort food. And then I decided to, you know, dive in myself. Right, right. And to what exactly defines a cozy mystery for those who might not be familiar with the term? What a great question. Um, so cozy mysteries, uh, the the very like the, the cliff notes or sparks note version is uh that you, an amateur heroine sleuth, although it can be a hero, uh, an amateur sleuth uh, who has wonderful sort of almost cottage core hobbies, uh, solves mysteries in their spare time. That's and there's no sex on the page, no violence, no no uh, profanity, and that's I think a pretty good definition. I, please add to it if I've missed anything. Now, would you think it like would an Agatha Christie be included, or was it a little too violent? Honestly, she's still kind of considered the mother, the mothership of it, you okay, know. Okay. But it's gotten to be, it's so interesting because some cozies have gone not only where like really nothing's on the page, it's, 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 you know, it's a bake shop. It's very cutesy and there's nothing wrong with that. That's delicious and wonderful. And now some of other ones right now, like myself and Misty Simon and, uh, uh, I don't know Finley Donovan. I wouldn't consider her a cozy, frankly, but at least Misty. <laughs> but but who are going into where we're still abiding by the rules, but we're going as close to the edge as we possibly can. You know, we just want to play with it a little bit. Yeah, so. yeah. But it's still it's still cozies. Well, you know, Agatha Christie is like of course amazing. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> That's what I grew up loving. Yeah. You know, I think I saw um, I saw a play based on her work first before I read her books. And uh, I was hooked ever since. Well, I. Um, what about you? I was in London last fall and went to see Mousetrap, which has, oh, <laughs> which has been I think it's the longest running play. Yes. Ever anywhere. And it it was it was fun it was just so much fun it's yeah. exactly you know what's going to happen but you still sit on the edge of your seat yeah and yeah I mean, obviously i'm because of this i'm a huge theater lover so you know had to uh and london is a fabulous place to go so it sounds like you had a great trip oh yeah yeah we did it we did that you know so we went for the most traditional theater and then we did an avant-garde theater Ooh, piece like called burnt city Okay. Um, that is supposedly was like based on the fall of Troy, although I really didn't see that in there. But it was <laughs> it was in a warehouse, this old warehouse out on the edge of the city. And the audience, you, you get let in a few people at a time. 
They yes. try, and you're and the audience is all wearing masks and you're yeah. walking through all these rooms and different scenes are happening. So every in in each room or nothing yes. or you just look at all this. The, the I know set. exactly what you're talking yeah. about. I yeah. did the same thing in New York. It was for a play called Sleep No More. And oh, gosh, it was oh, it was based off of Hamlet. And so, oh, wow. Uh, you know, it was a modern thing. It was several floors, the yep, whole deal. Yep. It was very and, dark, very smoky. Yes, <laughs> and you're poking around. And, you know, I went with my husband, but they separated us. Yes. You know? Yes. They did yeah. that. I was with two, my a friend and a couple, and they separated all of us, but the they were trying to. But the other yes. woman and I, we were too scared to do it. So we, like, sort of cheated yeah. and together <laughs> I wish we had done that because it was like two to three hours and like yeah. the first hour or so I'm like okay this is cool I'm gonna just do this on my own and after a while I'm like okay I really need to find him and then of course my phone died <laughs> and so uh I'm in finally like this lounge area where it was sort of like a 1920s sort of flapper yes, yes we had that too <laughs> Oh my goodness. It must be the same company. It it's must gotta be. be. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. and then finally I asked, I mean, I'm in New York and thank goodness I asked um, a fellow, uh, well, I'm not a New Yorker, but my whole family is. And uh, I asked a fellow New Yorker, I'm like, please, can I borrow your phone so I can call my husband? <laughs> Hopefully he'll pick me up even if it's a strange number. Uh, I'm like, listen, I'm in the lounge. I don't know how you need to get here, but you need to get here because I'm done. <laughs> but it, it was so definitely, it. it was definitely very interesting. And the funny thing is that, I went, we went there on the recommendation of one of the publicists that um, I use a lot for Writer's Voices. So, uh, oh, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, so that must so have been a lot of fun. It was. It was. React. But back to a Midsummer Night scheme. Sure. So tell us a little bit about kind of the setting and the. the sure. Of these. The whole thing. Yes. The so thing. the first book had been a revenge fantasy about the mean girl in town getting murdered. This time it's the Lothario or the Lotharios in town who are the subject of someone's ire, which, you know, as much as I'd like to think I've evolved and all believe in, you know, grace and forgiveness. I'm sorry. I get a lot of pleasure <laughs> out of, out of you revenge. Know, <laughs> the revenge of this, this. So Chad Frivoli uh, is sort of the local kid who made good. You know, he becomes a big Broadway star. He comes back to uh, my town of Vienna, Virginia, and he wants to, like, open a theater here. He wants to something for his legacy. And uh, while some people, of course, are thrilled that he's back, all the, the scorned women from his past are um, really unpleased. <laughs> and, in fact, the sort of three main characters, uh, three sort of uh, sort of suspects, uh, like, you know, modeled after sort of Macbeth's witches, you know, which uh, I love the witches. So, you know, they, of course, are all sort of giving their threats and have different motivations. And uh, Quinn Kane, who is one of the heroines, her sister, her sister, cousin, whose sister Daria, the nun, is also, but they, they go back and forth between the chapters with their point of view. At first, they're just, you know, of course, Chad gets, so this is a perfect example. So Chad, um, gets murdered on the page, which is something that cozies don't do, but it's through a series of snake bites. So it is a stabbing. It's just a different. So that's what I'm talking about with playing a little bit. If you're, if you're a wreck, not arachnophobia, I'm sorry. What's the one for the snakes? Do I don't know? know. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't either, but there is one. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so, 
there is one. And of course, I'll think of it as soon as we get off the call. But uh, so if you have an issue with snakes, you know, maybe this isn't the book for you. But, you know, it's so that's where you can have some fun with trying to do that. And so but then the killer um, is coming after Quinn's brother. Even he's engaged recently. He's settled down. But he had a, um, you know, a checkered past with women in his past. So someone is obviously uh, targeting, uh, you know, players the yeah the players. players yeah the players of the town okay. and so yeah it's a little bit of revenge for me i'm not gonna <laughs> lie you know? you know like oh you you know i mean i'm not holding on to any gripes over any particular ex-boyfriend i didn't have any in mind when i did this it was just sort of <laughs> a general sort of you know lethal feminist cry of you know you were not decent at the time <laughs> That's that's now, why of... why did you choose uh, Midsummer Night's Dream as the kind of the uh, framework for this? So it's, you know, I happen to enjoy so many of his plays. Uh, you know, this one, uh, the, the setting is in the end of summer. So, you know, I wanted something that had, <laughs> I wanted, you know, you have this sort of idea of summer, of frivolity and frolicking, just sort of as the play does itself, you know, Puck sort of going through and, you know, poking fun at us and, and what have you. And so I wanted that veneer of celebration, but with the undercurrent of something sort of growing. So that's where that came from. And it's not the only play featured, obviously. The quotes go all over the place with Shakespeare. But that was the, oh, you think that we're coming back to summer. You know, the last murder had been solved, you know, with the first book. Now we're just going to get back to, you know, sunshine and rainbows, but all <laughs> quite right. Yeah. Right? So right? That's the fun of it. This is amazing. I just was wondering if you used some of your uh, knowledge from your uh, college things that, that to, to set the scene. I mean, there's there's so many interesting characters in this. Right. Um, so I people who live locally, because there's a lot of, you know, I use some people who really do exist here in town and businesses in here in town. And they always ask me, like, so who's really based on who? And I say all the, 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 the people <laughs> who are wonderful are based on real people and all the people who are villains are, are people I made up. <laughs> that's how I keep it. That's how I keep it, you know, diplomatic. Uh, these are no one, none of the, uh, the Chad Frivoli is not based on anyone that I know. The name Chad just seems like such a jerk name, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's, it's, Apologies yeah, to all the Chads Google. out there. <laughs> well, the, I'm sorry, Chad, but, you know, I, I literally uh, Googled uh, names of player guys, you know, uh, so yes, you yes. Jake and Chad and Trevor. Uh, you know, as far as all the interesting characters in there, they're really not based on anyone from college. They're based on people I know here. You know, it's it's not a small town, but it's not a big town. So is Vienna, Virginia a real town? It's a real place. I'm I'm living here right now. I'm, I'm, oh. I'm here. And what you know, it's someone who's a local from here said it is Vienna, but a little zhuzhed up. And I think that that was a really good example. Is that there was a, really a a pet sanctuary um no, nunnery <laughs> no but there is a a monastery in upstate new york um and it's a brotherhood so it's the same concept but with 
monks instead of nuns. Okay. And they do raise, um, you know, German shepherds. And I don't think that they do, they bring in rescues. I think they just breed German shepherds. And train but, them to be. Yes. Um, uh, yes. Emotional support dogs and. They do a whole, a whole yeah. thing. Over wow. There. Wow. So, so, yeah, so that is sort of, I mean, it's just not here, you know, but I, I stole that because I loved it so much. <laughs> okay, how about All, the, how all about writers that? are thieves, you know, <laughs> we can't help ourselves. How about that restaurant? Is it really the a rest- restaurant? That with, restaurant, with yes. Tacos. <laughs> so, yeah, the, there is a Clarity restaurant, and uh, absolutely, they do not serve snake tacos, but, you know, I, the, <laughs> owner, the owner isn't a fabulous, uh, you know, uh, you know, American woman of Puerto Rican descent who happens to have all these wonderful recipes from other parts of her culture from Central and South America. But uh, that was that she's she is made up. But the restaurant is an absolutely wonderful place. And uh, I I don't go enough. It's a little too expensive for me. But, you know, <laughs> you know, it's a little rich for my blood. But I I have enjoyed going there once or twice. And uh, the, the diner that's there, um, Church Street Eats, uh, there is a sandwich shop that is somewhat similar to that. It's just not a diner. So mm. that's, but there is another place called, Inf- well, it used to be called Infora. It's now closed, but I sort of, I, you know, an amalgam, you know, a, a merged thing. But the bookstore is based on a real place called Bard's Alley. Um, that's the name of the actual bookstore instead of Pros and Scones. And I worked there for over a year uh, to, Frankly, to learn the book business, since I was an author, I kind of wanted to see behind the curtain. And what I learned, it's so funny because I used to always think, oh, when I get older, I'll I'll have an independent bookstore myself in some little small town. <laughs> and then then you go and work for one and you see, I mean, my talk about a labor of love. It is not an easy business. Yeah. And I ended up uh, I have a ton of respect for Jen Morrow, who runs it. And I always am very thankful she gave me a job. But I'm like, you know what? I'll just support you. And then I quit that job. And then right before the pandemic, I decided to go back into psychotherapy. And uh, then I was, you know, watch. I was basically caring for people via telehealth because of the pandemic. Right. So that's, yeah, that's a whole other. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> sure. So. I'm assuming there's more books coming in this series because mm. you certainly left the I opening know. at the end. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you did. I did. I, I solved the murder, but I leave sort of the side, you know, character, you know, sort of. You know, unresolved. Very, yeah. Unresolved. Yes. And I've gotten mixed reviews on that and that's okay. Yeah. Um, I will be really, can I tell you my brutal honesty, which I haven't told on another show, which, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Is um, So I did that on purpose. I had a two-book contract with Crooked Lane, and I we get along famously. And I wanted to be a third, a fourth, a fifth. So at the end of this, I'm like, well, if I ended on a little bit of a cliffhanger, and then enough people, you know, get a little like, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? Then Crooked Lane would come back and be like, well, we got to sign you up. So that's, it was a bit strategic as an author. It was yeah. a little like that. And um, I already have the next book in mind. It's going to be a Halloween book, which is going to be, I think, one of my favorite things of all times. Oh, because, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, right? Boy. So is yeah. it, so are you going to use Frankenstein as the book to hang you know, on? It, or? 
I mean, if you're going to go for a horror book or a horror themed, I mean, Frankenstein is literary for sure. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, I have to see. I have to yeah, see. Or, I love or it could be, you could do um, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. That's the thing. That, that's where the fun is, right? Is, yeah. Is, you know, then you go by the genres and then you think about how you want to do it. And it's endless. It's so, really, it really is fun that you've, you've done this in a, you know, that you've, you know, there's a lot of mysteries out there and they all, you know, a lot of times there's similar, you know, in a cozy mystery, there's a certain similarity, but the fact that you, you sort of hang it around a very famous novel and then throw this yeah. book binding thing in. So let's, um, yes. let's talk about that after I remind our listeners that this is Writer's Voices, and we're speaking mm -hmm. today with Harper Kincaid, author of A Midsummer Night's Scheme. So, book binding. Yes. What's I your... wish I could tell you, <laughs> I know how to do a little bit of it. I know how to, I'm, I, I collect, or at least I used to, collect rare first edition books, um, mostly, uh, mostly probably mid, uh, mid, yeah, mid 20th century probably is what I have. Uh, and if you're going to get into anything with rare first editions or what have you, you're going to be needing to do repairs. You're going to what have you. So I and also, to be perfectly honest, I wanted to do something a little different than what was in the cozy mystery genre. There's a there are people who do bookmobiles or libraries or what have you. And, and I love those, by the way. This is no shade to that. I just wanted to do something a little different. So. Um, she does probably more repairs and what have you in the first book. Like you see her doing mm. her craft. The second book, I have her sort of going off in a different direction, like making her own uh, leather journals that she could uh, sell in the shop. Right. And right. I, I mean, we're research people, right? You know, <laughs> we love to, uh, well, I don't know if you are, but I could say I love researching everything. So it's part of the ADHD. I hyperfixate and then I go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> and so I learned about all the different stitchings and how what what it is to do it with the leather. Is it, you know, better for a vegan leather versus the cowhide versus this and, wow. and stitch that does the and you know, how do you emboss the leather? And so I, you know, here's the the trick though. Like I find it fascinating. But I can't put all of that research into a book because most people are not going to want to do it. <laughs> so I take just sort of the highlights so that people realize I did my research and then yeah. I move on. Yeah. yeah. So now in A Midsummer Night's Scheme, those um, books actually are a plot point. Yes. Is it, was that the case in the earlier book, too, where there was? It was. There yeah. was something yeah. in that. Absolutely. And uh, uh I, you know, it's just, I like to tie in the books. I'm all, you know, I'm a book girl. Like if, if it's, I want there to be that thread. Ha ha ha. Sorry. That a little bit of a, <laughs> but I, I like to have all the parts of the world that hopefully I've created to, to weave together so that people who are aficionados of cozies in general, but book lovers in particular can feel that I'm honoring their interests. Ah, very nice. Very That's nice. what I like. That's what we like to do. <laughs> I've got to tell you something. So, an accountant who has her her writing voices 
So that means you're the Jill of all trades in your own, that you're a Renaissance woman. You're not just a one trick pony yourself. Well, that's true. That's true. And I'm actually an entrepreneur and started a a manufacturing business. So my goodness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What do you manufacture? uh, Home fragrance products, aromatherapy diffusers, things like that. Um, the nice. uh, wallflowers for Bath and Body Works. Yes. Those yes. That type of thing. My daughter is a fan. Yeah. <laughs> any, give her uh, anything that will make a room smell nice, and she's she's Perfect. My kind of girl. So, I'm going to tell her that I met yeah, you. Oh, this yeah. This is very exciting. <laughs> so, yeah. I, yeah. So that's so how uh, – I was about to ask, how do you have time to do all this? Yeah. But you find the time. Yeah. That, yeah. That's a good question. <laughs> That sounds like a mother. Yeah, my my daughter's working too hard. My my daughter is stretching herself too thin. Part of it is, you know, I I had my kids really young, and so they grew up, and so, you know, I got used to having to make a living and and raise kids and be really, you know, get a lot done. And um, so then they grew up, went off, and I had more time. (laughs) You know what? It's so funny you say that because I just my young I have I have two children. One's graduating college and the other one just started college. So I am a recent empty nester. And um, I have had, you know, I have a lot of people who come to me. Oh, aren't you sad? And and I'm like, (laughs) and I'm like, listen, I miss them. Of course I miss them. But am I sad? Am I like walking around, like beating my chest? Like, oh, what am I going to do with my life? I have a a list, like a mile long (laughs) of things I want to do. And so I find that, as much as I enjoyed being their mother um, and I enjoyed aspects of motherhood, I do feel to be be brutally honest that I am coming back to myself, that there was pieces of myself that I had to put aside in order to raise these human beings. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find it that way? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Because yeah, absolutely. Because they have to be your priority. And That's right. when my, you know, when my youngest left home for college, it's like for the very first time in my life, because I started so young. Yes. So, so for the very first time in my life, I didn't actually have to put somebody else's needs ahead of mine. I know. It's and, mind blowing. And and I could do what I wanted, but it took yes. a while to figure out what I wanted. Yes. Because I wasn't used to even thinking about it. I totally get you. I I am relating to this on 10,000 levels. Like it took me six months or maybe not six months, but it took me like three months to like, I don't like, I didn't know how to start even. Right. 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 Yeah. And then I, I got over it and I finally decided to give the advice that I give to my, to my clients, patients, whatever words you want to use. I I hate both of those words, but Mm. I say just do, even if it's for one minute. Just start something, do one sentence, do one, do one bit of the project. And of course, once you sort of get over that hump, you know, then you're going. Right, right. Do you, do you have trouble getting started writing? uh, Yes. Uh, (laughs) It depends. You know, this one, this one for sure, this one, this book in fairness, you know, it's supposed to be sort of one book a year and people can follow the series and know that they have that. Um, but for me, it was right at the beginning of COVID is when I was supposed to start writing this book. Mm. And I started back to work and then my father died and then COVID and just that whole oh, thing. Wow. And so I couldn't write for a year. And that's never happened to me. Like even I may not always write as much as I want to write, but giving myself sort of that low pressure, even if you just do a sentence today, it's better than doing nothing. 
Um, I really couldn't do any of that. And um, wow, I didn't even panic about it. I had no desire to do it. And I still, of course, had a contract. And God bless my my publisher and my and my editor, uh, uh, Faith Black Ross, because um, they were totally understanding. They said, you do it when you're ready. They did not give me that, you know, that deadline pressure, which honestly was in their right to do. You know? Yeah, of course, because of COVID, everything got messed up anyway. I think they understood that. Yeah, I think they understood that. Yeah, and I mean, so, they, their books weren't even coming out because the printers right. weren't working. That's right. And supply yeah. chain was everything was yeah. just so a mess. probably so it pushing okay. it. Yeah, <laughs> probably pushing it down the road a little bit wasn't a bad thing for them because they were going right. to have to get everything that was in their pipeline that got delayed because That's of COVID right. done before. I never thought about so, it that way. I yeah. just thought that they were, you that know, that they were super right. nice. <laughs> you know what? I'm still going to stick to that story. Because yeah. I'm happier to think of that story. Yeah. But no, I really, I think they got it. And yeah. um, once then I did start, in fact, I, then dove head on into doing uh, art and my mom's an artist. I come from a family of artists. And so then I was doing a lot of uh, colored pencil and painting and different mm. things. And um, because I didn't, you know, for when you're a writer and words are your first love, and then you're going through a period of time when words are not even elusive, but like they've just completely absconded from the scene. Um, I was very grateful that, I had then a visual language in which to turn to, to express um, grief and frustration and all the different, you know, very human emotions. And then I still do art, but then after about a year, I was able to then to come back and to do, uh, you know, to work on this book. And I tend to think about it for a long time and I have it all outlined and then I start to write it and I will still go where I'm going. You know, I figured out my red herrings and what have you, but then the characters will let me know. Like, for example, my original plan was just to continue to write the book in Queen Kane's voice. Oh. And then sister Daria was like, no, you need to do this like they do in romance and go back and forth because I, I am just as fabulous of a character, if not more. And so <laughs> he wanted to let me know that. And so then I went back and forth and that, and for, so, people who love romance um, books will know what I'm doing. It's not something that's done in cozies, you know, it's, or in mysteries at all, you usually stick with one narrator, uh-huh. but I'll be honest with you, Monica, that as much as I love both of them, sister Daria has my heart. I think she's the more interesting character because <laughs> of the cognitive dissonance that's going on for her. Quinn Kane is a little bit more uh, settled, you know? And so. Well, Quinn Kane found her man. And That's right. Not, and you're not going to mess that up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. But, but I, I, no, she's not going to break up with him. That's not going to happen. But I am debating and I really would love to hear from readers. And I think I might put a poll or something on my Facebook page <laughs> or something. Like, do I continue going back and forth between the two mm. heroines of the book? Or do I let sort of Quinn go off and then just let Sister Daria take over? I think, which is, yeah, I think Sister think? Daria. I think yeah. at least for one book, see how that goes. Yeah. 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 I, that's a really, yeah, I, I, I'm I, leaning that way Yeah. because she's the one I'm, I'm interested in. Yeah. And the truth is, is that, of course, just like in a dream, you know, Jung and Freud would say they're all the people, all the characters in your dreams are really aspects of yourself. Uh I think that's probably true of, of 
book the characters as well. in the book. Yeah. Right. Yep. You know, Quinn, Quinn mm-hmm. Kane is the part of myself that's very risk adverse, you know, that, that, um, you know, I, I met my husband when we were very young. Um, we got married at 26. Like we met as, as kids at 11 years old at a, <laughs> at a Jewish sleepaway camp. And let me tell you, so I have to tell you this funny sort of thing. So like in, I've heard from friends of mine who have gone to like Catholic or Christian sort of sleepaway camps, their whole goal is to keep the, the, the boys and girls apart as much as possible. But at Jewish sleepaway camps, they're like, no, no, get together. Like, you know, maybe they'll fall in love and get married someday and have more Jewish children. Like, it's all about assimilation. And so, like, we sat by the campfire at 11 years old where a lot of people get their first kiss. And I was terrified, did not want the first kiss. I was 11 for, for Christ's sake. You know, I wasn't <laughs> and he just held my hand and talked to me. And Aww. then the summer ended. And like years and years later, I was 24. I went to a Hebrew day school uh, class reunion where my former nemesis was married to a distant cousin of mine who was best friends with my now husband. <laughs> and he said, and he was like, you are perfect for David. And I'm like, why do I know that name? And said his last name. I don't use the last name because just to keep it yeah, private. Yeah. But, uh, and then Stacy uh, was like, Oh, you know that because you dated him when we were 11. Don't you remember? Da, da, da. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're right. That's that boy. Uh-huh. And so I had to go on the date just to see how he turned out. Oh, my And goodness. I almost canceled the date a million times, Monica. I almost canceled. But <laughs> I had my best friend in my voice saying, just say yes to everything. Just say yes. So he could be he could be someone else's husband that you introduce him to. Or he could be your new really good friend. Or you just don't know. And so if it wasn't for that advice. I wouldn't have gone and I wouldn't have met, you know, we've been married for, oh gosh, 26 years and together longer. Oh my. And yeah. And you met when you were 11. That is so sweet. And I have a letter that I wrote to my, so when my mother married uh, my stepfather, uh, she got rid of all the stuff from like her previous marriage, including all the letters that I wrote to her, which is, you know, trauma, but that's okay. And yeah. So, it was, I, you know, she's wonderful, but she's a complicated character. And okay. so when okay. I went through the letters and I found the letter saying, dear mom and dad, I met this boy named David, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, we danced at the social and, you know, I was talking all about meeting him and I have that framed. Oh, yeah. How cute is that? It really is. It's, and if you know me at all, like I'm so not a corny, cheesy person. Like I, (laughs) every time I hear stuff like that, I go, "Ah," you know, like I'm so. I'm such a jerk that way, but I've got my own little cheesy story. Well, those are the best stories. I I have, um, I have a really great cheesy story about the man who started the business, who I ended up starting this business with. I would love to hear it. Have you shared it with your listeners before? I don't think I have, but, but people in the company know it because our company is actually fairly sizable. We have like, Three locations in the U.S., one in Mexico, Hong Kong, That's and China. And yeah, we're, we're pretty substantial. So um, Jeffrey Smith invented the first product that, that the company started from. And he, um, when he was four or five years old, and I was 15. Oh, my goodness. And I worked at an ice cream stand. In this, in our little town here in Fairfield, yeah. and he, his dad would give him silver dollars, and he would come and buy ice cream with these silver dollars, 
which I would then take out of the till and put in a paper dollar and keep the yes. silver dollars. Yes. And um, and he was, you know, he's an African-American, one of the few African-Americans in the town. And um, this cute, cute little boy who yeah. can spend these silver dollars. And, silver dollars. Yeah. yeah. And then when we reconnected many years later, like right as my daughter was going off to college. So he was in his 20s. I was in my 30s. Yes. And I realized who he was, that he oh was this gosh. little boy who had come. And he told me he had a crush on me. He remembered. Of course he me. did. He had a crush on me. Because that just makes the story that much cuter. <laughs> I know. And I gave him back his silver dollars. Oh. <laughs> I love the story. I've also clapped over that story. Oh, that. Monica. And we started this company together. So, yeah. That's a Hallmark, that's a Hallmark movie. Isn't right it, there. though? It really is. And, you know, God bless Hallmark because I know that they're, it's all saccharine sweet, but I am I am all for it sometimes. Oh, especially, I love that. especially the holiday ones. Oh, well, that's, I yeah, mean, it's like yeah. a fetish almost. Like, it's yeah, like, yeah. I hear from people who've written for them and they're like, okay, this is a great manuscript, but you need to put more Christmas. It's not enough Christmas. Uh... Like, more Christmas. <laughs> but that's okay, because I have both Jew Jewish and Christian uh, roots in my well, family. Well, I, so I was curious know. about, Harper, I was curious about, um, you know, you talked about being Jewish, but your character's a nun. That's right. So, how'd that what, happen? What the heck is that about, right? <laughs> yeah. So... It's, I think that even as a kid, you know, in the book where she talks about um, her fascination with like Sound of Music and everything else, I think to all Jewish American kids, Christmas and nuns and that sort of, it's this very exotic thing for us because there's really, we don't have nuns in our culture and uh, we're too busy trying to procreate. We're not saying no to sex. So, you know, <laughs> we want to we make sure that uh, we, we get as many uh, bodies out the door. But, um, you know, all of that was sort of this very, you know, the I was at it. So I said a Hebrew day school. So it's sort of either part of sometimes the conservative movement or the orthodox movements within Judaism and Back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, their whole thing was fighting assimilation mm -hmm. and to the point where it got into some paranoia and it was a little overkill. So it only ends up making everything that's other more exciting. Uh, yeah. And then when I was growing up, you know, my mother is half and half like her mother was Jewish. Her father wasn't. And so, um, you know, I had members of my family who were, you know, I guess, you know, Protestant of different uh, denominations. And then I had my Jewish side. And for a long time, it seemed like it was sort of at war with each other. And then, um, and I've mentioned this on other shows, so I won't go into too much detail, but then much later in my life, I ended up having um, sort of a, I don't want to, I don't know if it's a spiritual awakening or, or I had a moment of grace and uh, where I received my own personal healing for some of the, the hurts in my life. And it was a very instantaneous sort of magical, miraculous thing. And so it made me want to explore my Christian roots even more. And so I did a deep dive, just like I do a deep dive into other things. I did it into that. And, um, you know, I really feel that they're both equally a part of me now. If I was to say that to people within the Jewish community, they'd be like, sorry, it's one or the other. But at least within my community here, um, 
Episcopalian and Anglican, they've always been like, you don't have to choose, you know, you can be both. And uh, so I, you know, I'm my own little quirky invention as we all are. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't do the Jews for Jesus thing. I'm not, I don't necessarily want to put my labels of messianic. I don't want any of those labels because I'm not trying to convince anyone of doing something that you've got. To, this was very personal for me. Right, I mean, my, right. my husband's Jewish. My children are Jewish. Um, I really, at the end of the day, I'm a Jew, um, but I cannot, I would not ever try to deny this deep love and gratitude that I do have for Christ, for the healing that I got. And it was him. I remember talking to a priest and I was like, why didn't this healing happen in my house, meaning a synagogue? Why did it have to happen here? And, um, you know, he was smart enough not to try to answer that. So, um, you know, but and so I know that that's controversial. Um, and I respect that. I'm not trying to convert anybody. I'm not interested in, and I only share what my experience was. So these books, when I started them, I was very involved with the Anglican church. Um, and because those were the people I knew and the kindness that they showed me was beyond measure, um, because I was very torn. This was not I mean, huge parts of my identity as being this loudmouth Jewish girl with from the sixth borough of New York, which is South Florida. I've been very comfortable with that identity. But I don't think you can deny. I think, you know, when someone said to me once and I thought it was very wise, you know, people talk about sin like lying or cheating. And obviously, yes, those are. But but the only sin that really probably hurts God is when he offers, you know, his her hand, however you want to put it that God's hand is being reached out to you and then you push it away. Mm. So I wasn't going to do that because he gave me something that I really didn't earn, you know, a peace and a healing that um, I just got it. Well, isn't you that know? the definition of grace? That is the definition yeah. of grace, which I love. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. But I didn't, we don't really have that same concept. Right, right. Yeah. You know, and that isn't to say there isn't absolutely miraculous, beautiful things about Judaism. It absolutely is. And I am not, you know, I'm just saying that for this piece of my soul, I didn't get it through there. Right. And so um, anyway, my point is, is that uh, uh, as I was going through um, learning and being part of this church, uh, you know, my daughter uh, comes out as gay and she brings home her wonderful, lovely trans partner, which was all, you know, something that was very new for us. And I really believe this was where my cognitive dissonance came in is. Um, I sort of figured that the Anglicans were about gay rights, the way sort of the Catholics were about birth control, <clears throat> that on paper, that's what they said. But everyone sort of knows that people use birth control. Um but then as time went on, I realized that as lovely and it is, these people are lovely people. But as much as they're lovely, I there was a sermon one time. It it was the most it was the kindest sermon you can be and still be non-affirming. And at the end of the day, I was like, well, what if they were saying this about Jews? Would it be OK? Uh, mm. And I said, no. And this is my daughter. And to her credit. And I talk about grace and action as my daughter, even though she would never see it this way, because I came to her several times like, do you need me to quit this church? She's like, I don't. Mom, you have given me unconditional love and support. I trust you. Whatever you need to do to, to help you. I don't understand it, but I support you no matter what you want to do. 
which was amazing. And eventually, though, in my practice, I treat a lot of LGBT young adults who are being told by so many people that they shouldn't exist. Shouldn't exist. Yeah, exactly. So as I'm trying to be a safe place for them, how can I be that safe if I belong to a church that's not going to affirm them? And I, it was so I ended up writing like a, the nicest breakup letter I've ever written, but <laughs> because I was very grateful to them, you know, they, there's these are, you know, these are people in my community who I do love. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I can't stand with them. So that is what Sister Daria is going to be going through, which is okay. Okay. And so, so is her convent an Anglican convent? Yes. I didn't even know those existed. Neither did I until I saw Call the Midwife through oh. um, the And during the pandemic, Call the Midwife was my my binge-worthy series. You know, I've been and, hearing about that. I need oh, to watch to, that. You have to, Monica. Yeah. You, not only do I, I'm ordering you to do it with love, <laughs> but I then want you to call me or email me and say, and, and I want to know what you think. Okay, okay. <laughs> So I was into called the midwife and I was going through my Anglican phase and I found that there were Anglican nuns. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. And, you know, as time has gone on, in fact, I've had some readers say, how can you be, you know, promoting this church? And I'm like, just wait. <laughs> and it's not. And the whole point of it is, I mean, there's religion is a huge part of these books. And, yeah. you know, there's a whole thing with an interfaith marriage that's going to happen. And, and what, you know, mm-hmm. I. It's all about my struggles. It's all about this. It's all me on in there. But <laughs> but at the end of the day, um, we're going to see like, you know, Daria was this really, you know, free thinking kind of libertarian kid and, um, you know, who was an ally. And then she sort of threw that all aside to like go into this, you know, into an Abbey life and to become a nun. And so talk about cognitive dissonance, and that's going to start to really, the third book is going to be her dealing with that. And then, of course, she's got, you know, people sniffing at her, you know, at her door, all these different boys, but men, I guess I should say. (laughs) A very interesting story arc, and because people are messy, right? Yeah. People are not, they don't usually have it all figured out, you know, You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Harper Kincaid, author of A Midsummer Night's Scheme. I just want to say, as far as I'm concerned, it's the same God. That's right. I feel that way, too. I finally came to that. But I went through such hell back and forth trying, you know, feeling like, I guess the the story of my life is that I thought things had to be an either or, and it's really an and. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Right. Right. This has been yeah. such a pleasure. <laughs> well, Harper, we need to have you read from the book before yeah, we run right. out of time. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, it's the perfect section that I picked because it's all about Sister Daria. So that's okay. wonderful. You know, we've been talking about her. Okay. Hold on a second. Let me get myself together. <clears throat> I'm going to actually have a little coffee here. <laughs> Good idea. My voice sort of cracking as I was telling you stories. Um it, it may not be as long as the as you want because just getting me to read. I'm only doing this for you, Monica. Because <laughs> I actually told my publicist, I'm like, in the future, I'm not doing any more readings, and it's not like I'm trying to be. It's because it's just hard for me. I don't know why. All right, so here we go. All right. Um, are y'all ready? Is it good? We are. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Before she became Sister Daria, 
When she was just the scrappy girl everyone knew as Elizabeth Lizzie Kane, she was obsessed with all things The Sound of Music, which everyone, including Lizzie herself, thought was off-brand. She was the kid with the sweaty mess of hair and scabbed over knees, who'd zoom past you on her skateboard and flip you the bird if, she got, if you got in her way. Back then, Lizzie didn't even like going to church, because why be stuck inside when you can be whacking a softball out in the park or knocking a bully off his feet? But then again, Fräulein Maria didn't start off as the Baronin von Trapp either. People change, usually in ways they could never have anticipated. Sister Maria began as an Abbey outcast, annoying the older nuns like it was her God-appointed job to do so. Lizzie could still remember watching The Sound of Music with her parents, singing along with Julie Andrews about raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens, thinking, thank you, Jesus, no one can see me now. She'd lose all her street cred, which in hindsight was ludicrous. She was from a Tony suburb outside of Washington, D.C. But years later, when she became obsessed with BBC's Call the Midwife, it dawned on Lizzie that the crux of her favorite musical's appeal didn't reside in Dame Julie Andrews' sonorous pipes or how the hills were alive with the sound of music. Elizabeth was wholly transfixed by the tenacious, enigmatic spirit of the nuns in the religious orders in which they served. And who could blame her? They might have been solely devoted to the Son of God, but that didn't mean they were meek church mice. These ladies had moxie and took care of their own. An apt example were the nuns of Nonberg Abbey. They certainly high-fived each other when they married off Governess Maria. But when, <laughs> there was no way, but there was no way they were going to let the Nazis get to her and her new brood, even stealing car parts to make sure they, they couldn't go out, they couldn't come after the Von Trapps. Saving their lives was totally worth the extra Hail Marys. And what about the sisters of St. Raymond Nonatus? Peddling their little hearts across popular London, alabaster wimples, uh, wimples of flapping like dove wings in the breeze as they brought new life into the world. The only comparative that came close from Elizabeth Kane's perspective was social worker pioneer Jane Adams and her girl gang at Hull House, who lived amongst the immigrants on the west side of Chicago during the early part of the 20th century. They weren't perfect by any means. A bevy of middle-class white women who assumed they knew best and inserted themselves into spaces they weren't invited. A tradition kept live and unwell into present day. But Lizzie still adored them. They dated, they dared to live their lives outside the comforts and expectations of their prescribed roles. It was no wonder her heroes growing up were Jesus, Jane Addams, and Henry Rollins in that order. <laughs> she had tried finding the same sense of purpose in her own life through jobs and lockdown psych wards and teen homeless shelters. But her colleagues, while laudable, didn't come close to embodying the, sol the solidarity and calling from which she was searching. And then as she was driving down Vail Road one day, Ginniford House had caught her eye. It's carpenter Gothic architecture, both regal and homey at the same time. Why had it taken her so long to notice an abbey, just like in Call the Midwife, was mere miles away from which she had grown up? The memories of why she had left the Anglican church years ago didn't make an appearance that day, nor did they surface for many moons after. What once had been a huge reason for her exit, the church's anti-LGBT stance, had been reduced to an annoyance easily ignored. Heady, heteronormative privilege she didn't bother examining. Loneliness and a desperate need for purpose 
could be just as dangerous as blind ambition. I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> oh, you did great. Thank you, yeah, Harper, for a, a reading from a Midsummer Night scheme. So does so. this mean you don't do live readings either? I really don't. But what I usually if someone wants a live reading, I will take my one of my more extroverted theater, you know, former theater geek friends. Uh, and have them and do I the do reading. <laughs> yeah. And just because I get nervous and I get tongue tied and I have a I actually also have an auditory processing disorder. And so um, what that means, I can hear just fine. But but uh, verbal language, sometimes when I get nervous, it gets jumbled. Ah, uh, so. So that's okay. It's like, that's, you know, it's the kind of thing. <laughs> it's sometimes I think it's also good to challenge yourself a little bit and be uncomfortable. Oh, so I yeah. do appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, what I did want to ask you about Crooked Lane and how yeah. you found your publisher oh, and sure. how, and what type of, you know, are, do they focus on cozy mysteries or what's their, what's their shtick? So they are a um, it's funny because they they position themselves up as this like really small boutique publishing. And they are to a point, you know, that's how they run their shop. But it is a, a division of Penguin Random House. So they have all of the um, advantages of the bigger houses, but yet they keep things pretty streamlined. Uh, they specialize in anything within sort of the general uh suspense, mystery, uh, thriller categories. Um, they tend to shine mostly with cozy mysteries because they've sold directly to libraries. Mm. Uh, so that's, I think, how they make their bread and butter. Um, lovely people. I've actually gotten to be in New York and gotten taken out to lunch and that whole thing and meet, meet the whole crew. And uh, so I found them when I was deciding, I had gone to RWA, Romance Writers Association Conference, in Denver, Colorado years ago, and I was meeting with my agent. And uh, I said to her, I said, you know, I kind of want to change into something different. And we were talking about it. And she was like, you know, there's this editor at Blank House, this was a Crooked Lane, who is looking for, and this is very common within genre fiction, where editors will sometimes tell you what they're looking for, and then writers will, you know, do that. She goes, she's really looking for, um, you know, a Southern small town cozy mystery series, but the, the heroine is a feminist and uh, somehow she wants something with dogs and nuns thrown in there too. I mean, <laughs> literally threw these things at the wall, right? And I was like, uh, okay, let me see if I can make that work. And I forgot to it, mention the dogs are a big part of this. <laughs> absolutely. Well, yeah. and that's because that's what she had wanted. And yeah. so I, and this is just goes to show you. So I wrote up I mean, I'm far enough along in my career and I'm lucky enough to be able to do this where I could write a proposal with what the series would be with the first few chapters. And uh, interestingly enough, that publisher from that house um, was the first to reject it and didn't <laughs> even like. So I guess it wasn't what she had in mind, which is fine. That means she should probably write it herself, but that's OK. Yeah. It ended up being beshared, you know, sometimes like, you know, meant to be so. You know, sometimes like I was so disappointed at the time, but then Crooked Lane came in, you know, because it was on auction and they're like, we really want this. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, because Crooked Lane within the cozy mystery community is very well respected. I mean, there's a few houses that are known for really uh, taking care of them. And so this is one of them. And uh, they were willing to take a chance on me because I was not a mystery writer. I was a romance writer. It's a, it's a, it is a very different space. Yeah. Um, 
And they were like, nope, we want it. And I said, great. And I got paired with Faith Black Ross, who's my editor, who's fantastic. And um, I got to meet the whole gang there. And they've been nothing but lovely and supportive. And we've been growing together, you know, and they've fostered my career, which I really appreciate. And they loved it from the start. And I've sort of told them what the arc of the different stories I'd like to do. And they're all on board. And you know, that's that's how I found them and they found me and it's been a really happy marriage so far. Um, <laughs> the only thing I would say is, um, you know, I am up for no renegotiation for contracts. So that always makes me nervous. But that's why I have an agent and she gets to do all the dirty work. Right. You know, right, I don't have right. to do that. Yeah. It's like when I, as I, you know, when I have clients that come in for psychotherapy, I work for a community mental health agency and then there's like stuff that's going on. Well, I have questions about this. I said, I get to refer you to a whole other office. I don't have to do this. Oh yeah. 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 So yeah, that's, and so I'm with uh, Crooked Lane. They've been embracing the series. They put, you know, they had a certain handful of books that they were going to do in paperback and they put To Kill a Mockingirl into paperback just recently. So it's a lot cheaper than for people to get, which is wonderful. So it came um, out as hardcover first. and then, It was a hardcover, and yeah. it's done well enough that they've now um, put it in. And it's, they, it's something they've never done. They never did uh, paperbacks. Oh, really? Ah. Well, again, because I think the, the majority of their business was libraries, libraries. Yeah. which makes sense, right? right? So, But now, I think with Barnes & Noble, um, you know, with their new ordinance of they're not doing hardcovers they're going to be moving all to paperbacks what um, i did yeah. not know that i think it's coming down the pike there oh, wow. i guess it's i don't know the maybe the hardcovers weren't selling as fast because they are more expensive yeah yeah who knows i mean yeah. listen you know i was i worked for a year at that at the bookstore for to learn the book business and i learned a lot and i'm still completely flummoxed <laughs> <laughs> right well that's yeah that's interesting but i can understand and also ebooks. Do you have any That's idea right. like how much of your sales are ebook versus yes, versus it's physical? A good so when I was in romance, I'd say about 75, 80%. Actually, no, 90% was ebooks. Wow. Um, over to, well, which is very common for romance. So, you know, it, it's sort of like the sausage that keeps getting made. You know, and yeah, people, yeah. people are, are reading at such a phenomenal rate that they want them cheap and they want them very accessible and they don't want to have to. Some people are still shy about, you know, picking a book and going to the cash register, things like that. Yeah. So for, for my mysteries, I would say it's really equal. It's 50, 50. Wow. Um, honestly, I think that the eBooks are a little expensive, you know, it's still an eBook. It's a lot cheaper. Yeah. Um, not that different price wise um, from, from maybe a paperback. A paperback. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I, I, you know, as someone who like, obviously I want to get paid and I want people to make a living, but I also am a reader and I think about <laughs> it too. So I, you know, I feel for everybody, but yeah, yeah so it's 50, 50, most of mystery readers and young adults, believe it or not, YA categories, they like the physical books. Yeah, I understand that. And Harper, we're completely out of time. So That's okay. we have to up. stop. And Caroline, do you have some final words for us? Well, you know, before every chapter, there's a, uh, there's a, a quote from a Shakespeare play. And um, this one, the web of our life is of a mingled, a mingled yarn, good and ill together. And that's from All's Well, that it's 
well. <laughs> All's well that ends well, folks. All my right. favorites pick there. <laughs> well, Thanks thank you so much, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices.